So again, welcome to uh, GCF. We only have, after this week, we only have two more meetings. Um, and typically, as the semester ends, we start seeing people drop out because of like school and finals and lame stuff like that. Um, but this is my plea to you um, to not just come, and I made this plea last week, but to invite people because we are getting to the, the gospel story portion of Mark, where in the next two weeks we're actually seeing the story of Jesus' betrayal, trial, death, and resurrection. Um, and so it really is uh, something where we feel like having spent a year in Mark, seeing who Jesus is, it's the theme of what we're going through, that we can't help but not invite people to hear the story. We want people to see this. There's, there's no better story. There's no better gospel. There's no better way to love your friends and to serve them by bringing them to hear the gospel of Jesus and then discussing that with them and talking to them, using this as a platform to engage um, in evangelism with your roommates, your coworkers, your friends. So just bear that in mind um, as we are nearing these last two. So we, we meet next week and then we meet the week after. And then Next week, you guys will hear some of the summer plans we have going on um, for GCF as well, for those of you who are not going to Summer Project. Um, but one of the things I love about being a dad is seeing how differently my son sees things from the way things typically are. And Johnny can probably attest that, that kids, once they start talking, not only are you able to communicate to them your world, but they communicate to them their world. And most of the time, it's really jacked up. Um, and it's really weird. And for instance, Owen likes to, to shoot people because um, he's a boy, and he'll use anything to shoot you. Um, but he says, he'll go, and then he go, I pushed you. And I'm like, what are you saying? You shot me. You didn't push me. But you know, I'm not, like we had, we had this, there's this new family at church, and we had them over, and we have this uh, Nerf gun. And the first thing their son did is grab the Nerf gun and go up to my, my three-month-old and just put the gun to her head. And so I'm like, what Owen's doing, it sounds nicer than just like shooting people in the head. You're just pushing them. And so I were talking about, so we're like, why is he saying that? We realized because when we're watching TV or movies and people get shot, they fall down like they've been pushed. And so Owen, in his mind, he thinks that when you're getting shot, you're just getting pushed. And so he's got his guns, which he pushes people with. Um, and, and he also has a different view of what's called fun. And I remember um, getting all these gifts, like for both child registering for your babies, the only thing I contribute is registering for Legos. And so far, I've only gotten one set. But you register for all these toys, and people give you all of these toys. And my son has played with none of them. He plays with sticks, and he plays with rocks. And when I do get him to play with toys, like with Legos, um, he just he doesn't know how to use them, and he does the most abstract things with them. And I get frustrated because I'm like, that's not how this works. That's not the way you're supposed to use this. And yet he's having fun just taking the biggest Lego block and just throwing it. It's not connect like it's fun to build Lego ships and destroy them. He doesn't even connect it. He just gets individual blocks, and then he'll line them up in a row, you're, you're doing it wrong, Owen. <laughs> but the thing is, is that he is having fun doing this. To him, this experience that he's entertaining, it's deeply real. And when it comes to the reality which God designed, much like Owen's perception of the world, it's often backwards to how we think things should be. But rather than being this, this disjointed two-and-a-half-year-old who's really doing things the wrong way and is really weird in his own mind, God is the creator who designed this world. To use programming language, he, he programmed the code. He, everything that is true about this world is true because God said it's true. And if God says it's true, it's not a subjective truth. It's a real truth because he's the creator. And tonight, um, in kind of the closing few teachings of Jesus in the book of Mark, we're going to see the backwards economy of the kingdom of God. We're going to look at three um, connected stories, connected teachings of Jesus, and this is what we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus doesn't see worldly perspective. He sees the hearts and the hope of the individual. Jesus doesn't see worldly perspective. He sees the heart and the hope of the individual. So let's pray again. Lord, we thank you. Um, Lord, I just want to pray, um, as I was just reading the Kaiman before we started, um, and, and the book that came out uh, regarding the, the culture of rape in Missoula, and reading the responses to it on both ends, Lord. But, but I just pray for our campus, 
um, which is broken, which is hurting. And Lord, the greatest thing that this that, that, that the greatest thing this campus needs is the gospel of Jesus. And that gospel of Jesus fixes people who do horrible things. That gospel of Jesus fixes people who have had horrible things done to them. And that gospel of Jesus is a reconciliation, a healing, an ultimate cleansing from the things of this world because we see the beauty of Christ. And so, Lord, as we are students on this campus, Lord, emboss your gospel firmly on us so that the university may see the hope that we have that they may see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and it won't be something odd to them because the Holy Spirit has warmed their hearts to it and they're receptive to it. Lord, pray for tonight as we hear your word proclaimed in Mark that it would labor on us, that it would stir us and challenge us and lead us to repentance and worship. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're diving in. Uh, we are in Mark 28 or Mark 12, excuse me, verses 38 through 13:2. Um, we're going to be looking at a little more than that, but that's kind of where we start today. And in verses 38 through 40, we're going to see the first part of what I just said. We're going to see that Jesus doesn't see the worldly perspective. Okay, Jesus doesn't see the worldly perspective. Starting in verse 38, and in his teaching, he said, "Beware of the scribes." who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the best places or in the best places of honor at the feasts but who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation and so here Jesus rejects this pious, flamboyant, elaborate um, religion that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious officials um, are doing in this day. Um, and to be honest, it's not only Jesus that condemns this style of religion. Our culture does, doesn't it? I mean, our culture has a nose often too sensitive to hypocrisy. They're turned off really quickly if they're interested in religion, if they're interested in Jesus, but the moment they, they smell hypocrisy, it's like bear spray to them. And they shut down and they run the other way. And it's because of people who were wrongly living in this manner that this happened. And if you, if, for those of you who have done some evangelism, or as you, you, you interact with people in your class or your friends or your non-Christian coworkers, there's this thing that always comes up that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. And maybe this is why you haven't gone to church before. Maybe this is one of the reasons you're skeptical of what people call organized religion. It's like things we hate, the mob, Ebola, organized religion. Um, and it gets lumped into this, this thing because they see hypocrisy and they see the insincerity of some people who claim to be Christians. And indeed, in, in, in a more common sphere of dialogue, this is what proponents of same-sex marriage always lobby at us. You see, how many of you heard, well, why are you guys so concerned about marriage when the divorce rate inside the church is just as high as the divorce rate outside the church? You guys don't even do marriage well. Aren't you hypocritical to try to legalize and, and, and build these borders around marriage? And in one sense, what they're doing is giving facts that aren't essentially true, and they're perverting the facts that are true, because if you narrow that scope from people who say they've been religious and you narrow it to the evangelical church, the marriage rates skyrocket and the, and the divorce rates plummet. Okay? And so that's not a true statistic. It's not a fair representation. In fact, the largest area where you see divorce rates increasing in the Christian church are in the mainline churches who are now affirming same-sex marriage. Okay? But for those who, who are Bible-believing Christians, that divorce rate is still relatively low. And so that's one thing. But second, secondly, Jesus himself is upset at this type of living. He is upset about divorce rates. He is upset about hypocrisy in the church. Get in line. No one is more frustrated about the state of hypocrisy in Christians and the showmanship of religion than Jesus himself. But let's also be realistic here, okay? Let's define hypocrisy because hypocrisy gets thrown around a lot. Like you start talking about Jesus and it's like, People got hypocrisy darts. They just start throwing around like, you're a hypocrite, you're a hypocrite. You're, it's like Oprah giving out cars. Um, and you're just getting hit with this hypocrisy language everywhere you go. But, but here's the thing. Jesus is not upset that people seem religious. That's not what he's saying here. 
Hypocrisy is not appearing to be religious. Hypocrisy is not having morals which have external expression. Hypocrisy is not being a fundamentalist. Hypocrisy is not preaching Jesus. Hypocrisy is not preaching the gospel while being a sinner. Hypocrisy is preaching a gospel while thinking you're not a sinner. And that's the real issue here. And this is what Jesus is confronting, this bold and open confidence in the appeal of man, of who I am, of who, what I've done, of what I'm capable of doing. And there are some people, and we've all been there at various stages of our life, where we value the perception of man more than the perception of Christ. And it's when those two things become inverted that we begin to reek of hypocrisy. I remember, um, so... Part of my seminary, I go over there for part of it, and I do part of it here, um, and, and we do like video chats uh, with our, you, you Skype in kind of to your classes. Um, and I remember it was one of the first classes, and I just got this new bookshelf that sat like directly behind my laptop, and those what those things are called. Um, and uh, and I like I like worked and like arranged it so you could just because I didn't want to be pious. Okay. Um, so I didn't want like this full-fledged bookshelf with many leather-bound books <laughs> posting my knowledge for all to see. But I, I, I got the corner of it, enough so where like if someone's looking, they're like, that guy has books, he must be smart. Uh, and so I did that, and then, and then it comes on, and you see kind of the other students join. And then there's this guy who's got like the congressional library behind him. And I, I, in my heart, I'm like, <laughs> look at that guy. Oh, you're so smart. And yet that was me. I wanted people to have this perception of me. And from that perception, I wanted them to construct someone that I thought I could portray and someone that I thought I was worthy of being. And oftentimes in our own lives, we put on a show in various things. We put on shows when our bosses are around. We put on shows when our friends are around. We put on shows when we have people we want to impress, where we be things we want to be, knowing it's not who we really are. But what Jesus is talking about is that there are people who desire to be seen as holy, who desire to be seen as devout, and both of those are good. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. The Bible talks about sincerity of faith. And maybe these people, I remember Owen uh, on Easter, he's two and a half, and no one's raising their hands yet because, like, Johnny hasn't hit a stride yet or something. And, uh, and Owen's in the aisleway like this. And I'm like, you little hypocrite. It's like, you have no idea why you're raising your hand in worship. But he's, he's just like, mm, I've got this, guys. Um, and so I turned to Sarah. I'm like, we got a little hypocrite here. And there are people in the church, and I've seen it. I've been in Christian circles long enough where worship, there's nothing wrong with raising your hands. There's nothing wrong with sincerity in worship. But the reason they're doing it is not a response of sincerity. The reason they're doing it is to draw attention to themselves to say, I'm really worshiping here. And those are things that at a heart level are the issues, but on the surface, I know because I've talked to these people. I know because in a sense, I've been that person. They draw attention to themselves and they talk about what they've done for God, what they've done for the church, the services they've rendered, the expansion of the gospel. And they promote judgment and self-righteousness on one hand, look at what they did. Look at what he did. Can you believe she did this? While at the same time, they themselves are above reproach and you can't critique them and you can't challenge them. And in one sense, in the Christian church, a lot of people do this. And it's attractive. You know why? Because it's really easy. Really, it's, it's super easy. <laughs> it's not hard to fake. This is true not just when it comes to our devotion. It's true in other areas of life. There's a photographer, maybe you guys have heard of him, who's gotten really famous because he was able to sneak backstage into Coachella and take pictures, backstage passes, interact with these bands, but he wasn't a legit photographer there. What him and his buddy did is they got these lanyards, like the Coachella lanyards, and they wore like a button-down coat and tucked it in, and they went to the security gate and just walked through really confidently, and they got through. They got these amazing pictures, but they weren't official members of the press. They were photographers, but they, they, they weren't licensed to be there. They weren't supposed to be there, but they got in. The same guy then decided to, to up, and like, this is a big up. Like, some people will like, oh, I got into Coachella. Let's try to get into, like, the public library without a library card or something like that. This guy went, and he snuck into a White House dinner using the same techniques. And he, he got in there. And he took pictures, and he's famous, and the, social, the, the, the 
Secret Service is like, how did this happen? And everyone is trying to be like, if it was that easy for him, how easy is it for some crazy person to do it? But, but here's the thing. He was able to sneak into these places because he looked the part, but the reality is he didn't belong there. The reality is he had no credentials to be where he was. He didn't do the background checks. He didn't apply for the permits. He didn't do the legwork. He took the easy path of performance, which as you grow and as you learn how people think and as you realize what people want to see, you can dance your way through your life and you can dance your way through the faith on a surface level without doing anything hard. You see, it's easy to look the part of Christian. Anyone can sing loud. Anyone can draw attention to themselves. Anyone can get a Greek tattoo, which makes you seem really legit. I'm sorry if someone has a Greek tattoo. Greek's great. No one knows what's on your arm. Um, and it's easy to do all of this, but the problem is, is if your identity is found in your appearance, there's really no substance to it. If your identity is found in your appearance, there's no security, there's no lasting joy, and it's because you, you can't relax. It's all about your look. And you can imagine, so when these guys snuck into this, this White House dinner, that's not like Coachella, they kick you out, maybe a bouncer like throws beer in your face or something. At a White House meal, if they found out you're not supposed to be there, I can imagine it's not a slap on the wrist. And so you can imagine these guys in there always being scared of being found out, always being scared of seeing who the real person is because it's about your performance, about towing the line, it's about keeping up appearances. And that, my friends, is burdensome. And if that's the way you approach your Christian faith, you are robbing your joy. But for the true Christian, it's not based on your performance before men, but it's based on Christ's performance before God. And for those who are found in him, there's a perfect acceptance. And there's a whole acceptance. Warts and hypocrisy aside. And in that work, you rest. You rest deeply. And you could put down the burden of performance and the cultural makeup we have to put on day after day. And we rest in Christ's completed work. For those who seek to belong because of their showmanship, Jesus says something really shocking there. I don't know if you saw it, but in verse 40, he says, they will receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. That's, that's in there. You Greek tattoo people, that's in the Greek. It's not just an adjective that decided to throw in there. Greater condemnation. Why? Because they're whoring out the gospel of grace for their own recognition. They're whoring out the gospel of grace to point to what they can accomplish and what they've done. And Jesus is not fooled by this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, he says this, Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, here's the thing. Jesus is talking about the Bible scholars. Jesus is talking about the religious officials, and he's saying greater condemnation for you than for someone who has never heard the gospel. Because it's a perversion of what Christ came to accomplish. That's a bold statement. For us senior, we should be, that, that should cause us to examine our own life. How are you living your life in light of Christ? How are you responding to that? And that's where the second thing comes in that we need to hold in contrast. The second point. The first is that Jesus doesn't see the worldly perspective. The second is, but he sees the heart and the hope of the individual. And so how are we then to avoid being rejected by Christ? How are we to avoid that day when judgment comes and we say, did I not go to youth group? Did I not tithe? Did I not do my devotions? Did I not stand in church and worship? How can you say away from me, you evildoer? How do we avoid that? How can we redeem our witness in front of man? Let's look at verses 41 through 44, the verses that Caleb read at the beginning. So he sat down opposite the treasury, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, 
And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. He called his disciples to him. He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So this is a wonderfully hopeful story for you college students. God is not burdened by your poverty, okay? You're going to make it. You're not judged in Christianity based off the amount of money you give to the church. And so it's freeing in that regard, but it's also deeply challenging in another regard because in one sense, and as Jesus is saying here, it's easier to give from a position of wealth. It really is. Um, I've, I watched House of Cards until it started getting weird, um, and then I stopped watching it. Uh, but you see it in House of Cards. You see it here on a local level. For, for some reason, and I'm going to get to that reason in a second, charity banquets are often the most posh, fancy, sophisticated meals you'll ever go to. White tablecloth, suit and tie, waiters, sparkling wine, steak, salmon, other expensive foods that I can't buy on my own. Why is that? I mean, here we are raising money for the poor, raising money for, pe- for charity, for things that people don't have on their own, and that's this lavish thing. Why? It's because the people who run charities are smart, and they're doing their job well. They know that it's the rich who have expendable income. It's not the poor. It's not the middle class. It's the rich. And so what they do then is they make a culture of elegance. They make a culture of fancy, posh, comfortable things which draw in the rich so that they might find in their heart to give away large chunks of change to an organization. But they do it so that the rich are comfortable there. How opposite is the kingdom of God in this text. Because here we see people coming and donating to the temple treasury. Um, and, and what this fund was, it wasn't to pay the priests. It wasn't to um, pay for the people on, at the temple. What it was, is it was a specific fund to furnish the temple. The temple was huge. And in that, God has prescribed uh, kind of dishes for worship. And they're not like, hey, go get some Ikea plates. God's like, hey, make this out of gold. Make this out of silver. Make this out of copper. Make this out of bronze. And so this money that was bringing in would go to the utensils of worship in the temple, but it would also go to the maintenance and overall care of the temple building. And Jesus sat opposite the treasury, and he started to watch. Can you imagine that? Okay, I get nervous when people watch me write out the tips when I go to restaurants like, I don't want to be seen as stingy. I don't want to be seen as presumptuous. And so I'm like, I don't want, am I 15? Am I 25%? Am I 30%? You'll never know. And yet Jesus went and sat outside the treasury. The one who is Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of God himself, sat and watched people give their money. And here he sees these rich people come. And Mark says they offer large sums of money. Luke says they offer great amounts of gifts. And you can imagine the joy because this isn't something, as a pastor at church, I see what's given because we're relying on it for paying bills. How much more do you think the religious officials who didn't really, at this time, have great governing mechanisms for where the money was being spent, um, how joyful do you think they were when they sat there in this parade of wealthy people we're giving this money into the temple treasury. I'm sure there was some pomp to it. I'm sure there was some regality and some celebration of all that was happening. And after all these people go up and they give these huge gifts, here comes this poor widow. And probably with much shame, don't you think? Because here we have people who have given more than she's ever had her entire life. And like a drop out of their pockets, they give it to the temple officials. And here she comes with what today would roughly be a dollar and nine cents. And she puts it in there. And the temple officials were probably unamused, maybe burdened that this low life, this probably scuzzy, smelly woman, widows had no place in that society. She's coming and ruining this cavalcade of the affluent. 
The disciples were probably unimpressed, right? They're watching with Jesus. They're like, what should we see here? Certainly Jesus would be like, be wealthy. Give out of your abundance. But Jesus says something entirely opposite and wonderfully revolutionary. Mark 12, 43 through 44. And he called his disciples and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contribute out of the abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, okay, let's take our Bible glasses off, okay? And, and let's look at this. Jesus is being crazy. Right? Okay, Jesus, who throughout the Gospel of Mark, we see has read the thoughts of man. Okay, he's, he's different than us in that way. Like, where we can read people's faces, Jesus reads people's hearts. And, and he sees these rich people putting in large sums of money, and the creator God, you can bet, knows exactly how much those things are worth. And here, and we know that because he knows exactly two coins, which this lady put in. He knows exactly the weight of that. Sitting from afar, opposite the treasury, he knows that, and he sees that. So how, according to his holy divine math, did this lady put in more than all of the other people? Okay, we should be shocked at this. Jesus would not pass accounting exams here. That's bad. And yet he says she has put in more. How? How is this more? Look at what God says to Samuel when he's anointing David in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says this, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, the difference here is that Jesus didn't see the amount that was given. He saw the affection which was given. And that affection that Christ saw was worth far more than the abundance that was given out of heart that didn't have that affection. You see, when it comes to following Jesus, and that's what Jesus is after here, the question isn't how much have you given, it's how much have you withheld. How much of your money, how much of your passion, how much of your life, how much of your time, how much of your desires, dreams and aspirations are you withholding from God? And see, this, this widow took all she had to live on and gave it to the temple. Why? That's foolishness on another side, isn't it? For this widow, who has no cultural standing, to take her measly dollar and nine cents, hardly worth a value menu at Wendy's now, and to go to the temple and give it to the temple. But she did so. Why? Because nothing was worth more to her than the worship of God. And that temple... For the Jews, that was the icon of it. That was where God dwelled among his people. That's where sins were forgiven. That's where they were atoned for. That's where prayers were offered. That stood as a symbol to all other nations that here is Yahweh. Here is a God who cares for his people. Here is where worship happens. And she realized what we all ought to realize is that it's better to enter the presence of God with empty pockets than to be in his absence with full coffers. And she got that. See, what Jesus is saying here is that the only suitable offering to God is the entirety of your being. Because when she gave all she had, if all she had went to the temple, her identity went with it. She didn't hold back her career. She didn't hold back her social status. She didn't hold back her food or her family. When she gave all she had to the temple, she literally put all of her eggs in one basket, the basket of God himself. And you see, it's easy to view Christianity like this ginormous thing of community service. Yeah, Jesus saved us, Jesus loved us, and I know I should give some of that back, right? I remember growing up and my mom's forcing me to tithe and the premise, which is true. God gives us all of this and he lets us keep 90. That's a great truth, a wonderful truth. You should do that truth. But, but here's the thing is we, I'm, with begrudging hearts growing up, I'd give my 10% of allowance to the church. And, and as you grow up, you hate going to church and you hate getting away from what you want to do with your friends. And so you, you can carve out two hours a week for church. It's community service. Two hours a week. 
I might want to go, I may not want to go, but that's there. Two hours, done. Put that in the checkbox. If you're really holy, you guys are here right now in addition to church, GCF, four hours. If you're like the super Christians here, you do church, GCF, Bible study, six hours, okay? And then maybe you're one of those college students um, who, is, who has an income and you start tithing off of that income. It's like, good, I've done that too. Maybe your income grows and you get older and you've got a greater income and you can give from that as well. But the reality is, is that God is not after the fluff of your life. God is not after the excess. He's after the heart. God doesn't want your affluence. He wants your affection. Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, created the world out of nothing. They don't need a dollar. The church can use it. The church is good. God's not dependent. He's like, oh my goodness. That widow gave two cents. Two measly cents. He's not worried about that. He sees through it and he sees her heart and she says, she gets it. She's given more than the rest of those combined. Affluence, riches, and time. Those are safe. You guys can give those away. It can affect so little of your life. It's safe. It's easy. It's simple, but the giving of your heart, the giving of your affection, that's a dangerous task. That's something that not everyone will do. So what does this mean for you college students? How does this shape your life? Now remember this, this widow was giving in order for the temple to stand, to this literal physical temple. Why? Because that's where God dwelled. That's where sins were atoned for. That's where prayer happened. That's where worship was facilitated in order to be furnished. She gave the, her all, all she had to that. Yet look at what happens immediately after this, okay? Verse, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. As he came out of his, the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The apostle Luke informs us here that they're speaking of the temple. And he says that they literally say, look at the gifts the wonderful gift of the temple. You see what Jesus says? He says, what a great investment that woman has made. This temple will endure forever. I mean, that'd be the Hallmark card thing to say. But look what Jesus says. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You see, here the widow is given all she has to this temple. Here the disciples are amazed at this temple. And Jesus says, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be annihilated. And because there's no temple building, the proper application of this isn't go away, college students, and give your good temple tax. Have the affection of your heart. It's different. There's a new nature of things. Ephesians 2 gives us a little hint of how we should apply this. Ephesians 2, verses 17 through 20. And he came, that's Jesus, and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so what Paul is saying, and as he's writing this, uh, it's probably with the temple still standing in Jerusalem, um, and he's writing this, and he says to them, what Christ is doing, he's building a new temple. And that new temple is the church. In the church, those who are far off have been brought near. In the church, Jews and Gentiles are being bound together in Christ from all backgrounds, from college students, from poverty to riches to tongues to nations being brought together in the temple so that Christ may be made manifest through the church. And you see, Jesus is telling us something here. He's, he's saying that, yes, you should. Okay, College students, you'll hear it from me. You should give money to the church. It sounds self-serving for me to say that. I work at the church. You're really paying for me. But you should give money to the church. Why? Because the church is a mission from God. And you see that even in the Old Testament. It's said to give to the church so that church may labor. You see um, that those who labor in preaching and teaching should be given to. Do not, uh, don't muzzle the ox when he treads grains. Okay, give to the church. 
do that. I do that. You should do that. We should all do that. Give to the church. Not my application, okay? I said it, okay? I moved on from that portion. Give to the church. Now move on. But here's the thing. Jesus is after the affection of your heart, the works of your hands, the thoughts of your heads, and the words of your mouth being won by the gospel of grace and purposed and commissioned to serve the church for all eternity so that the world may see the glory of God through the labors and good of the church. You see, you should work hard at your studies. You should work hard at your holiness. You should work hard at your job. You should work hard as a friend. But what it costs to follow Christ is everything. We give, what Christ is saying, you give all that you have, not parts of it, not compartments of it, not the majority of it, all that you have to the mission and good of the church, which results in the glory of Christ. The widow gave the whole of who she was to the temple. How then are you, as 21st century college students, how are you giving all that you are to the new temple, the new age, the church age, the age of evangelism, the place where campuses need the gospel of Jesus, the place where the world needs the grace of of God. You see, when Jesus called his disciples, he called them into gospel poverty. And that's a beautiful mystery. You see, Jesus says, she gave out of her poverty, they gave out of their abundance. What does that mean? You see, Jesus isn't calling you to serve him from your strengths. That happens naturally. You're using your strengths in school right now. You're using your strengths in your sports. You're using your strengths in your passion and your desires. What gospel poverty means is that you serve God out of your greatest weaknesses. You give to God the areas of your heart that are weak and are feeble and are crippled and are oftentimes ugly and malnourished and you present those weak and feeble portions to the king of kings and he uses them to build something eternal. He uses them to build something that you could never imagine. He died for your all. He wants your all. He deserves your all. Give all of your life to Jesus. Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to, like this widow, look at the whole of your life and present all that you are to Jesus? And let me give you three questions here. Okay, Three questions, and then we're going to move on to this last part, the, the part of hope. Some of you say, I'm doing this. Some of you say, I'm not doing this. We all have different places with this. Here are three diagnostic questions as to where your heart is, where your affection is in all things. Number one, where do you spend your money? We have essential places we can spend our money. We have places I spent my money to go to Harry Potter land last week, last Tuesday. I was in Harry Potter world in Orlando, and it was fantastic. Um, you can do that, okay? That's fine. That's okay. But as a whole, when you look at your pocketbook, does it reflect what the widow reflected? Does it reflect giving and missions and giving in support of the church? Does it reflect you blessing your friends with, with buying their coffee or buying their dinner? Does it reflect helping out with your family or your grandparents who are ailing? Does it reflect that? Secondly, where do you spend your time? What are you doing with your time? Do you spend it up doing things only you like in isolation apart from everybody else? Do you spend it only doing things that are a benefit to you? Do you spend it using people? Do you spend it serving people? Do you spend it loving people? Thirdly, how do you view your aspirations for career? Is it something that career is over here, the Church of Christ is over here? That doesn't mean that you have to work in the church, but it certainly means that what you're doing in your studies and what you're doing in your career should be influenced by the church. I love my wife. She's 10 times the evangelist I'll ever be. She's a massage therapist, and like she comes home and tells me, like, oh, this lady was telling me about like her husband getting divorced and I had the opportunity to tell her about Jesus and invite her to church. I'm like, you're, you're better at everything than me. Um, and, and she sees this like, it's, it's, for her, it's not this like massage thing where she's helping people with injuries. It's like, I've, I have a captive audience to tell people about Jesus. In your careers, does that influence you? I know people who, who desire to make lots of money, but the purpose is they want to do that so that they could support churches. And as a church, we've received great, one-time donations of large amounts, it's such a blessing. So God's not opposed to you earning vast amounts of money, but he is opposed to you finding your identity in that. He is opposed to you not being generous with what he has given you graciously. Those three things, where do you spend your money, where do you spend your time, and what are your aspirations? But, but here's the thing, why is this important? 
God wrote the world, God designed the world, couldn't he have found something more attractive? That's a tough sell, isn't it? That's putting everything, that's calling people to give all of it. And realistically, it is asking a lot. It's a great cost to follow Jesus, and it is a lot. Because here on earth, there's a lot of things we should consider and need to be considered. School, relationships, family, finances, career, health, hobbies, things like that that are good to experience, that are good to think about. And the list goes on and on and on. And yet Jesus is demanding a life of complete self-denial and wholehearted commitment. Why? Is God just this insatiable egomaniac in heaven desiring everybody to serve him and love him for all eternity because he just, like an like a insecure junior high girl, wants to be made much of? Is that who God is? That's not the God of the Bible. The Bible makes it clear that God is zealous for his glory. If God treasured something else above himself, he'd be an idolater. If God treasured something else above God, we should worship that. But God finds full peace and full accomplishment in and of himself. But at the same time, he's not a self-absorbed dictator. You see, the reason why Jesus is so passionate when talking about discipleship, to press us to lay all things at his feet, and for everyone to follow him, is because he's deeply concerned for your good. He's deeply concerned for your joy, both in the next life and the life to come. And there are two things that Jesus knows that are forcing him and compelling him to give this talk. The first is you'll be exposed. You'll be exposed. For those of you who have your Bibles open, you see, uh, if, if you have a red letter Bible, um, which this is all the word of God, so uh, the red letter just tells you where Jesus is talking. There's a lot of red. The single largest teaching passage in the book of Mark is coming up next. And if you look at the headings, you have the same Bible as mine, you see signs of the close of the age, the abomination of desolation, the coming of the Son of Man, the lesson from the fig tree, where Jesus goes back to the fig tree he cursed, um, and then he says, no one knows the day or the hour. See, it's no coincidence here that this call for heartfelt affection precedes one of Jesus' longest teachings on the end times. And look what Jesus says in Mark 13, 13. It's a little past where we are right now. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, why is Jesus so concerned about your heart? Why is he nagging us all the time to give all that we have to him? It's because one day there's going to come a time where the accessories of your life are taken away and all you have left is the hope of your heart. Time and time again in this discourse, Jesus prefaces what he says. He says, I write this to you so that you will not be unprepared. I write this to you so that you will not be asleep. I write this to you so that you will not be mindless of the coming judgment, which is real, and the consequence of a life buried in the praise of man and the comfort of the world is not trivial. It's an eternal punishment. My people, my church, look and live. That's not what you want. You will be exposed. You feel comfortable. You feel accepted. You feel joyful. But it's not, and it won't last. So Jesus is pleading with you like someone who doesn't understand the vastness of the disease they have. Look at what's important. Treasure what is enduring. You see, just this week, 30 more Syrian Christians were martyred at the hands of ISIS. And at that point, you will not be able to endure if you only live in the comfort of your excess. That's not joy. You will only be able to endure trials as that if you live out of your poverty, if you live out of your weakness, realizing that Christ died for your all and he alone I love the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question is, what is my one comfort in life and death? And the answer is, my one comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to the person of Jesus Christ. For those of us who live long enough to see it, we see a glimpse into the end times here in Mark 13. And Jesus talks about war, and he talks about famine, he talks about hardship, he talks about deception. And for those of you in here right now, if you live long enough to see it, if you're accustomed to the easy way of performance in this life, if you're a Christian because it's easy to put up the facade, because it's nice to feel like you belong, because it's great to have a good set of morals, you will be deceived. You'll be led astray. And you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. But those who live in the poverty of Christ will endure, and they will be saved. 
for those of us who die prior to that judgment day, you will stand before God one day and he will see with eyes unrivaled and eyes unfooled the affection of your heart. And he will judge it and he will not hesitate to look at the poverty and excess and find it lacking if it's not found in him. Why does the widow matter? Because we will all be that widow. We will all be standing, laid bare before Christ, either having presented all that we are to the cross of Jesus or hoarding the whole of who we are to ourselves. But to those who are truly saved, who like the widow have seen the weight of the cross and have baptized their passions, their heart, and their desires to Jesus, they will endure and it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it here on this earth. I love the parable of the treasure. It's one of the, our, our core series at church is called the treasure series. This woman who, who's wandering in this field and she finds this, this treasure in this field and she goes away and sells all that she has in her joy. Why? Because even on this earth, there's greater joy in following God and in living that life. It's not just life gets better. It's that life is infinitely good here in the now by giving all that you are to Christ. And she buys that field and she lives with joy and pleasure forevermore. And it's worth it. And they will consider, as Paul says, everything as loss. Riches, loss. Fame, loss. Wealth, loss relationships, loss, sex, loss, career, loss. Why? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. They will be content, as Paul says, who endured shipwrecks, hardships, persecutions, calamities, all for the sake of Christ. Why? For when you are weak, Christ is strong. That's the poverty gospel. Forget the prosperity gospel. Choose the poverty gospel. That's enduring. That's saving And that's because Jesus not only knows the first issue, that you will be exposed, he knows the second issue, that those who endure will be rewarded richly. Now remember the widow giving her offering to the temple. The money that was taken from that box went to the lavish work, this huge thing that there's now a wall of that's left and people come from all around to adore it. But but you know what? Jesus was right. In 70 AD, that temple was ravaged. It was destroyed and it was upended completely, totally, to this day, destroyed. So is the widow's offering in vain? No, as we already saw, Jesus is rebuilding this temple through his church. But you know what? The churches will fall. If you go to Sovereign Hope, that church might fall sooner because it's barely standing. The people you go to church with, they're going to die. They're going to get old. They're going to get decrepit. And they're going to collapse. In our day right now, Christians are being isolated persecuted, martyred, murdered across the globe. Are your labors in earth in vain? Look with me at Revelation 20, 21, 1 through 4. The new heavens and the new earth, when the judgment has passed, John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem where this, woman, this widow offered her tithes to this temple coming down out of heaven from God and prepared as a bride adorned for her future husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. For those of us who give our all to God, we don't need the temple for God will dwell with us, really with you in a way where he's with us now in the church, he's with us now in the assembly, he's with us now in the Holy Spirit. They're in ways unsurpassed will God be with us and there'll be no more tears and there'll be no more cancer, there'll be no more disease, there'll be no more death and no more martyrs because the former things have passed away and the widow has reaped her reward. And what of the temple? Read on, verse 22 of chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, and by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They'll bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why do we give all we have with Christ, to Christ, for Christ, the affection of Christ? Because one day, those who have the affection of Christ, who live out of the poverty of Jesus, will dwell with God, and God will dwell with them. And there will be no temple because we are fully satisfied of the joy of Christ in ways we will never know before. That is the true life. That is the backward economy of the kingdom of God. This is what you're contributing to here, is that life. So look to the widow and give. And look to the cross and live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have asked much of us, but we have asked more of you. In fact, we haven't even asked. God asked much of Jesus to come to this earth from holy perfection, from divine on high, to come and take on human flesh in limited form and endure shame and suffering and bear our sins and die on a cross to the mirroring jest of the crowds. You did more than you've ever asked for us to do. And as response, Lord, to that beautiful gift of the gospel, may you empower our hearts to do things that are so anti-American, to do things that are so anti this culture of affluence and wealth and comfort, but to give all that we have, not so that we may wallow in poverty, but that we may rejoice in the true poverty of Christ. Where to die is gain and to live is Christ, and what is good is bad, and Christ is seen as Lord of all, to the glory of Christ and the good of his church. We love you, Lord. Give us a clear picture of the reward. Give us a right cause and motivation for life. We pray this in your name. Amen.